This episode of the Single Tracks podcast is sponsored by Steo. Steo makes functional mountain lifestyle apparel for both the epic and everyday moments in life. Hey everybody, welcome to the Single Tracks podcast. My name is Jeff and today my guest is Eric Porter. Eric has been a professional mountain biker since 2003, getting his start as a semi-pro in 2001 after winning the U.S. National Championships in both downhill and slalom. Eric has competed in everything from cross-country to free-ride and slope-style competitions and is currently sponsored by a bevy of brands including Diamondback, Magura, Pock, Cliff Bar, Camelback, Kenda, and Reynolds. Listeners will certainly know Eric from videos like last year's Red Bull video, No Room for Error, shot along a hair-raising ridgeline trail in Alaska. Thanks for joining us, Eric. Yeah, thanks for having me. I've read that you started racing cross-country and eventually ended up competing in slope style. How did that progression unfold for you? Yeah, that's uh, pretty uh, opposite ends of the sport, I'd say. Yeah, so I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and cross-country racing was what was accessible to me. And I started hanging out at the local bike shop and then got a ride to one of the races, and um, and I loved it. And it was just riding trails um, as fast as you could. Did you ride on the road at all before that, or did you just jump right into mountain biking? No, I actually got into mountain biking not even knowing what it was. <laughs> when I was 12, we just uh, it was time for me to get a an adult bike uh, or a you know 26 yeah. inch you know mountain or road bike, and um, ended up with a mountain bike. And there were trails at a state park by my house, and my friend Mark and I just started riding our bikes to them and uh, riding on these trails and going fishing, checking out the river. And it was just something fun to do. And then, you know, you're at the grocery store with your parents and obviously you end up at the magazine rack because who wants to shop for groceries? And um, and that was when I found out what mountain biking was and I uh, started reading mountain bike magazines. And uh, then I started going to the local bike shop. And yeah, so ended up uh, falling in love with the sport and and then racing cross country. And, uh, and that was all I knew. Um, we didn't have anything else around there. And then I got into, when I started racing collegiate, the Midwest had, I, I was at Western Kentucky university and they are part of the Midwest collegiate circuit. Okay. And, uh, that region had the best slalom scene, uh, for whatever reason, uh, hmm. maybe because they didn't have downhills or whatever, but yeah each school would build their own solemn track. And uh, so I showed up to the first collegiate race and I saw um, Scott Hart there in his full sun ring leg kit and a yellow and black Turner and mm -hmm. like, you know, Troy Lee D one helmet and uh, just, and, and ripping back and forth between these berms and hitting jumps and stuff. And I'm yeah. like, that is the coolest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> and uh, so immediately started, uh, you know, I only had one bike at the time. So I started, uh, swapping parts. So I'd, you know, put a short stem on and, uh, riser bars and a low seat and flat pedals. And, hmm. and at first I was switching back and forth because cross country was one day and slalom was the other day. So you had time at night to kind of set your bike up for one or the other. Yeah, um, wow. Yeah. And it sounds so ridiculous now, but, uh, you know, that's, that was how it was. And, um, and I couldn't afford a, a dedicated slalom bike either. Yeah. <clears throat> so then, um, you know, eventually my cross country bike ended up being, I just stopped switching stuff back and forth really. And then it was just seats high or seats low, you know? Right. And, uh, which is funny cause that's kind of modern trail bike setup now. Right. But, uh, 
back then it was just you know making the bikes work better funny enough that was a actually a diamondback team issue that i was doing that on that i oh wow so i worked at a diamondback dealer and pro dealed pro dealed that bike and yeah pretty crazy full circle there as well to end up on the diamondback team yeah you got a lot of use out of that bike it sounds like oh man i learned how to ride trials on that bike as well i learned how to dirt jump on that bike i raced downhill on that bike I, i did everything on it i just rode it until it broke finally or found some cracks in it and then <laughs> then i think i ended up getting uh i actually got a downhill bike that like a full that was and that was my first full suspension bike too it was an actual eight inch travel uh, it was the gt dhi um the steve pete one. Oh, nice yeah and um and then another you know cross actually i think i was still riding like that diamondback cross-country bike then for everything else but yeah ended up winning collegiate national championships my senior year in solomon downhill which was amazing and i started racing all the norbas all summer because that's what everyone else did and i mean in the midwest region they were full-on pro racers that were you know they're racing pro at the norbas which is yeah. a big deal back then and then going to school as well. Like Lindsey Wilson had full scholarships for mountain bikers. Wow. Uh, There's nothing like that at, at, at my school, but but that was the kind of talent that was there and the people I was riding with. And I saw what they were doing and I wanted to do that. So <laughs> yeah, I was racing the Norbas and moved up to from expert class to semi-pro class. And then at that point, you're practicing with the pros and then you're traveling week to week with, uh, with everybody and on the circuit and I was just sleeping in a van and bumming floor space and stuff like that. So nice van life before it was the thing. Exactly. <laughs> in a Pontiac, Montana minivan too. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You don't see many people fixing those up and kitting them out these days. No, no. <laughs> yeah. I just took out the back seats and I had, um, I had my downhill bike, my solemn bike and my dirt jump bike kind of all three on the left side of the van and then a thermarest on the right side to sleep on and, then in the back was, you know, some clothes and, and a like backpacking stove to cook ramen noodles with or whatever. <laughs> so what was your thought at the time? Were you thinking that this might be a career or were you just pursuing, you know, just sort of the funness of it at the time? I mean, it was the it was chasing the dream for sure, but it was kind of the dream that you didn't think would actually happen. Like uh, <laughs> I was still continuing with college and I was um, planning on, I just like being outside and I got a degree in outdoor recreation and tourism. And oh, nice. so I wanted to work for, you know, forest service or a ski resort or something like that. I mean, I did my internship at, um, at a ski resort at Paley Peaks, Indiana. Okay. And I got to do everything there. And that was my plan was to move out to Colorado and work for a ski resort and ride and snowboard and, yeah, just have a good time. But at the same time, I was racing and trying to do better. And But I wasn't, I kind of figured out, was figuring out pretty quickly that I wasn't fast enough to, to make it in the full pro downhill race ranks. Because those guys, you'd see the guys who would come up through semi-pro and they would immediately just, you know, win or top three every week at semi-pro mm-hmm. and then quickly move up to pro and then be top 20 in pro. And I was struggling to, I think my best result was fifth place, I believe, at uh Deer Valley, Norba. And, uh, but I think part of the problem was looking back now is that in between the races, instead of having a road bike and trying to get fit and training and that sort of thing, mm-hmm. I was going to the dirt jumps <laughs> and I was going to skate parks and we were riding street and yeah. I was kind of following the path of, uh, like Jeff Lenoski and Aaron Chase and Kyle Ebbett, those guys I'd seen in the, 
like chain reaction videos. And mm -hmm. I, I love that because it was accessible to me because there's street riding everywhere. There's dirt jumps and skate parks everywhere. Right. You know, I, I thought the North shore stuff was cool cause that was happening at the same time. Right. But it was just completely out of my world. You know, there was nothing like that. And so it was super foreign to me. So it was, I, I gravitated towards kind of what I knew and what was what I could do. Yeah. So through doing that, somehow I figured out that, um, I rode a little bit of BMX uh, for a couple summers in Louisville where there was a big BMX scene and not too much, but, but a little bit. And then I'd ride straight on my mountain bike too. But anyway, I figured out somehow that I could um, grind uh, ledges and stuff like that on my mountain bike without pegs, um, just on the dropouts and on the crank arm. And Wow, that sounds dangerous. Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> I think the reason I went to no pegs was because I tried sliding a rail with pegs on uh, on my BMX, and I hung up a peg on one of the uprights, mm -hmm. and it threw me straight to my face and knocked out my teeth Ooh. and was, on, you know, had a bad concussion and stuff. So, so then I'm like, well, screw pegs. I'm uh... <laughs> <laughs> Those things are dangerous. Exactly. And... Um, if there's no pegs, I can't get hung up. No problems. And right. Yeah. So, uh, there's a, like a skate park contest, I think up at uh, Rye airfield. And then I was doing a road trip with, uh, Aaron chase and his crew. And Aaron was like, you got this on a rail. Like you can slide a ledge. You'll be able to take that to a rail. No problem. Mm -hmm. And on that road trip, we ended up finding one that looked good to me. And it was actually a fairly famous one in the BMX world from uh, Van Homan, legendary street rider. And it's in one of his segments in Criminal Mischief. But yeah, Bunny hopped onto this rail and grinded the whole thing and it worked out perfect. And and so from then, I ended up getting into a magazine. Uh, Scott Hart, the same guy that I was saying was the fastest song dude in the Midwest. At that point in time, he had started working for a magazine and started Flow Magazine. Took some, he took a picture of me Grinding a Handrail, which then became Cover of the Magazine, which was my first magazine cover. And then all of a sudden, I started getting calls from sponsors and things kind of started happening, you know. And that was also, that was 2002 when that happened. And then so then 2003 was when the first, it was called Joyride that first year, but it was the first Crankworks really up in Whistler. So for first big slope style, and then there was a another Red Bull slope style up in Montana and some skate park contests and I just ended up doing really well in contest after contest. And that was, that was it. And then I had a job riding my bike. Cool. <laughs> That's really interesting to me. So how did you go from sort of grinding rails and things like that to doing these massive jumps that are a big part of slope style competition? That seems like kind of a big leap to me. Yeah. So the, um, the slope style, style contests were always kind of based around big jumps. That was the foundation and they had other features too. But, um, you know, in between, again, in between all the races and going at school and college, um, I was always just dirt jumping a lot. I was completely addicted to it and loved it. And I still do. I have a backyard full of dirt jumps and I think it's about the most fun thing I've ever done. Just floating through the air like that. But yeah, so that was uh, a pretty natural transition into that. And I did, for the first year of my career, I moved to New Jersey to live next, live by Aaron Chase and Lenoski. And uh, we'd go to Woodward all the time and train on jumps and practice all the tricks. And yeah, that, that was kind of how I got good at that stuff. I mean, Chase and I had a rule for that year where it was, I uh, can't remember what we called it, but it was something like uh, first run flip or something where... We'd roll into the jumps, which were in Lenoski's backyard, and um, you'd flip the first jump 
first run. And that was, that was warming up. So it was, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was, uh, it was that kind of that culture that, um, everyone's pushing each other and getting better all the time, which was awesome. Yeah. That's cool. The other thing I wanted to ask you about is your height. You know, you're tall guy, what, six foot three? Yep. Six three. Do you see your height as an advantage or maybe a disadvantage in some of the competitions you've been a part of? I see it as an advantage. Um, the bike is proportionately smaller to me than it is to someone who's shorter. So I feel like it's easier for me to move things around, throw it around, whatever, and use it to my advantage. I don't understand how the smaller guys like Andre or Kurt Sorge or, you know, the, the, the smaller guys like that are able to whip their bikes like they can. And I guess it's kind of the, like a moto where it's, you know, the bike is much bigger. And, but yeah, I've always seen it as an, an advantage. It may have hurt my snowboarding. There are not very many. I wanted to be a pro snowboarder before I wanted to be a pro bike rider, actually. Um, and I was doing uh, slope style contests and border cross races um, snowboarding. And there, there's only been a few really successful tall snowboarders. They're all five, three, five, six, whatever. Like they're all most of them are smaller guys because I think it's a lower center of gravity and easier to spin and flip and whatever. Yeah, that's what I'm thinking too. It's sort of like gymnastics where a lot of the athletes or most of the athletes are are on the shorter end of the height spectrum. Seems like that allows you to move through the air and do a lot of acrobatics and things maybe a little bit easier. Yeah, I actually did gymnastics for a little bit growing up too before I got into bikes. Yeah, because it was, you know, again, something that was accessible in Louisville that I could go do and, and do flips and spins and all kinds of cool stuff like that in the air. And I think it definitely helped with snowboarding and bikes and flipping and aerial awareness there. But yeah, I think uh, I think height has helped me with uh, being able to move the bike around how I want to. That's really interesting. So one more thing I want to ask you before we move on. It sounds like you started racing before college. So were you in high school when you started racing? Yeah, I was um, 15 years old when I raced my first cross-country race. Um, I think it was out at Ski Butler, for those of you in Kentucky that have been around for a while. Um, it was an old ski resort that shut down. But uh, yes, uh, one of the local shop guys, John Mahorny, drove me out to that race. And Were there any other 15-year-olds competing with you at that time? It seems like having high schoolers race mountain bikes is a relatively new thing. Yeah, uh, I don't remember there being very many, and it was... I, what I remember is the fast is how fast the older guys were like the guys that were in their thirties and forties, how fast those <laughs> and strong those guys were. And I was, I'm still looking, I'm 38 now and I'm like, all right, that old guy strength is going to kick in any day now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you're a kid, you just figure as you get older, you're only going to get stronger, right? Yeah. I think the, uh, I think your endurance and toughness gets better as you get older, but then, mm -hmm. The, the sprinting maybe and the elasticity of hitting the ground and crashing goes away. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so it's it's amazing what Nike has now. I, I clearly remember being uh, the only kid in my high school that rode mountain bikes. You know, I'd come back from a race and I'd say, oh, that was awesome, <laughs> this and that. And they'd say, what are you talking about? And they no one would have any idea. Right. And now, especially living in, in Utah, which I think has the largest uh, Nike league, I've been helping out with uh, their leadership summits and things like that. And, you know, I, I try to tell the kids how lucky they are to have this opportunity. And I mean, the, the Nike races in Utah, they'll have a thousand kids show up to a Whoa. high school race, high school only. I mean, 
Yeah. I don't think a thousand people show up to a a regular regional or local cross country race. Right. Yeah. Even for running cross country running, that would be a big race. Yeah. No, it's huge. And even, you know, to do something with at the school, I was on the running team on track or whatever. And I remember telling the coach, Oh, I did a mountain bike race. And again, she had no idea what <laughs> I was talking about. And <laughs> it was good to get into college and have people like me, which I think that's what college is all about. You know, finding your group and finding what you're into. But it was, you know, that was awesome. Uh, and then the kids these days, I mean, our our kids are so lucky to, to have NICA. Yeah, and it's just going to get more and more competitive if you think about kids starting mountain biking earlier and earlier. It's just awesome to think about what this next generation of mountain bike athletes is going to be able to accomplish. Yeah, and I've had, uh, I mean, one of the kids at the Leadership Summit last week here in Utah, he left the high school football team and he was successful. He was good. He left that for the mountain bike team because he likes it more. And I mean, less chance of concussions as well. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Mountain biking seems way more fun than football. Yeah. And it's the thing that I like about it uh, more than anything is it's a it's just a lifelong activity. It's not something that you do in high school and then you're over it. It's something that you can always come back to. You can always ride and you don't need a team of 20 guys to to play um your favorite sport so i think it's good to give kids tools like that like some an activity that they love to do that they can go do by themselves if they don't uh if they want to yeah that's awesome so obviously you're a very talented and competitive person and at the same time i think a lot of people who know you would say you're also one of the nicest people in the industry you know how the saying goes that nice guys finish last, but over the years, you've proven that's not always the case. So how do you square your affable personality with the competitive side of what you do? I'm not sure where the competitive side came in. Like, would you get nervous before races and find yourself getting into that competitive mode where you're, you know, kind of gritting your teeth and, you know, hoping to destroy everybody out on the course? Or were you more the guy who is... Uh, sort of relaxed and chill at the start and just kind of hanging around and talking to other people. Yeah, I, I, I always tried to stay pretty chill. And um, I, I wasn't, um, I guess that maybe that's part of why I, I didn't, um, you know, make a career out of racing. Um, but uh, yeah, I always stayed chill and I would always, you know, uh, make jokes during races and, uh, you know, joke around with people on the trail. And I remember being uh, yelled at in cross country races for riding wheelies, and people would say, "Quit riding wheelies! We're trying. We're racing here." I'm like, "I don't know why you're racing, but I'm racing because it's fun." Um, yeah. Huh. <laughs> but yeah, I think you can. I think you can have both. You can be really competitive and have a good time doing it. And you know, I mean, the stuff that I did the best in, like with, uh, I think I maybe I would be a little bit quieter before and focused, and you know, slope styles. It's everyone has a different style, you know, um, at the top of the roll in, some of the guys are joking around. Some of the guys are doing push ups, and some of the guys <laughs> are just, you know, sit over on the side by themselves. Um, yeah. And, uh, I, I would always talk to people, but, uh, I did, I think visualizing is a huge part of it. And mm-hmm. so if you kind of, I would kind of, you know, get quiet and be in my own head and, think about what I'm doing and imagine what I'm going to do before dropping in. And I mean, there are a lot of nerves, especially when there's a huge crowd of people watching and you're about to do some of the scariest stuff you've ever done. Yeah. And it's, you know, you could get hurt. 
that very real chance of that. Um, right, right. So it, it is pretty gnarly. Um, talking, you know, there's kind of, uh, it's talking yourself into it, but I also, I always called it, um, uh, kind of turning your brain off and, um, Oh no, that sounds like a bad idea. Yeah. Uh, but I think it's more now that I've learned about it more, um, it's getting yourself into the flow state Yeah, to where you can basically turn off all the other processes and let your brain basically get it. They used to call it getting into the zone, you know? Um, mm-hmm. but it really is where when, when you're there, it's the most amazing feeling in the world and everything else kind of gets quiet and goes away and everything slows down. So when you see, you know, Brandon Simonuk out there doing a backflip, double tail whip, bar spin, whatever, like some crazy maneuver. And it looks like just a whirly bird, you know, like (laughs) things flying through the air to him and his mind. It's he's done it so many times and it's broken down to lean back off the jump and then do the tail whip and the tail whip and the bar. And it's all slow in his mind. And, um, same thing with, you know, even just doing, I still do tail whips pretty often. And that's a pretty wild thing. Even just watching one tail, whip, like your whole bike goes around in front of you and comes back and it happens in a millisecond. Um, but when I'm doing it and I'm in the air, it's slow. Hmm. Like I come off the jump. I'm like, I've got plenty of time. Just wait a second. All right. Now kick. Now use the arms. And the bike comes around. I'm like, there's my left foot. There's my right foot. And it's, uh, it's, it's like a, you know, feels like a 10 second thing in my head, even though it's like one second from lip to landing or whatever it is. Yeah. I was actually asking one of these slope style competition judges, how they are able to do that, you know, without actually making a video and slowing it down. It just seems like it's really hard to see exactly what's going on and to count even just the number of times somebody flips around in the air. But I guess what you're saying is that if you've done it before, you can kind of slow it down in your mind and sort of visualize that a little bit differently. Yeah, it's it's repetition. I mean, it's the same thing like the kids do with the cup stacking or whatever. Like you do something enough times and it slows down um, the process. It You're doing it faster, but you understand it. So even as a judge, you've seen that trick happen. You've seen every trick that they're doing happen so many times that you all, you just know. Yeah. Your brain can process it really quickly. Yeah. And those, the good judges, um, they even know, you know, which way the guys normally rotate and, you know, they even know if someone normally spins left, spins left, but, uh, like bear claw tail whips, his regular tail whips look like opposite whips cause he kicks them the wrong way, mm-hmm. but that's just how he's always done it. So the, you know, the good judges now, um, they're at that level as well. So where they understand everything and they've seen everything and they know everything that's happening, which is awesome. Yeah. Cause there were times, um, I mean, back when, back when I was competing, it was, uh, it sounds like forever ago, but, (laughs) (laughs) but it was like, uh, you know, if you were going to do something opposite, you had to let the judges know, um, that you were going to do an opposite 360 Uh or you had to just do back to back if um if the course allowed it so you'd spin one way off of one and the other way to the other just to oh wow make sure that the judges were informed of that as well so that you would get scored um correctly for doing something so much harder yeah 
Well, downhill and slope style competitions are super demanding, obviously. How have you managed to hold up after all these years? Well, I've, I've mostly never been the guy to just go for it. I think everything has been pretty calculated, um, even though it might seem like it. I mean, um, Chase used to call me contest guy because I would <laughs> ride the course and and I wouldn't necessarily do any tricks in practice. Um, mm-hmm. Sometimes because I was scared. I mean, those courses were every single one was completely different. The right. lips were different, the gaps, the speeds. And uh, so it was half the battle was figuring out the course. But so I would, uh, you know, just hit the jumps in practice, not do any tricks. And um, and then in the contest run, I'd, you know, backflip a bit this jump or tail up this other one or whatever um, and do my tricks in my contest run, which sometimes worked out great, sometimes didn't. Um, but, uh, you know, I, looking back again, um, I probably should have done more tricks in practice and then been more dialed in the contest. Yeah. But um, it's interesting. Part of it was kind of holding your cards close to your chest too because uh, yeah the judges would sometimes watch practice and it was all the mental games of like oh maybe <laughs> if i do it in practice a few times then they'll think it's easy and then they'll judge me against myself and right who knows but anyway um i think i've always been um i've thought about things a lot more before i just do them um and i would even if it seemed from the outside like something wild or like the handrail or like the um that you know, would seem like a rolling the dice type of move. It'd be pretty calculated in my head, you know, because I would have done a million ledges before or backflips on smaller jumps. And this was just a bigger jump. And so I just rotate slower. So I think uh, I've, I've tried to be more calculated and smart about what I do before I do it um, and visualize it and think about it a lot more. I've had a lot of injuries, but mostly, but not like the crazy ones like you hear about with some of the guys and you know, um, like zinc having so many knee surgeries or, you know, whoever else, um, and, you know, chase and bear claw with their backs. And, um, I've been pretty lucky with that. So I've had, you know, several separated AC joints, my shoulder, um, which those take as long as broken bones or or longer, two or three months to heal. Um, and then my ankles are pretty loose as well. If I dirt jump or do anything, like that, I still wear ankle braces every time, um, just from so many slope style injuries from jumping off and dirt jumping, just jumping off the bike and rolling ankles or whatever. Oh yeah. But then the worst, um, I'd say with the, and the most lasting too are, um, definitely concussions and the, the scariest looking forward into the future too, with CTE and, and just nobody knows. Um, so that's, that's the scariest one. <laughs> Yeah, you had mentioned that you listened to our podcast episode about concussions. And so I'm really interested to get your take. You know, we're hearing a lot about the effects, the long term effects that concussions can have, even just uh, various head injuries, even if they're not as serious as a concussion, particularly as it relates to football, where we're seeing parents, you know, less inclined to let their kids participate in football. So what would you say to Uh, People just starting out, you know, kids or parents of kids, would you say that it's worth the risk to do this sport if there is that potential for head injuries and concussions? Yeah, I mean, I think about that a lot, uh, having kids myself and scares me when they hit their head. But um, I I don't think, uh, I mean, what are you going to (laughs) do? Right. (laughs) 
that's, you know, part of it's what are you going to do about it? Uh, there's, there's nothing really. Well, yeah, you have technologies and things like MIPS now where people are starting to look at this and trying to find ways to prevent it. And having experienced concussions and head injuries yourself, I'm curious to know how you've dealt with that and if it's changed your approach to riding or, you know, some of the things you do while you're on the bike. Yeah, uh, I do think, um, I mean, technology is awesome with uh, everyone's uh, kind of fighting to uh, make helmets safer across the board and new technology comes out all the time. And um, I work with uh, Pac here in Park City and they're always trying out new, I mean, not on me, like trying out new stuff, but they're... (laughs) (laughs) You're not a crash test dummy? Right. Yeah. Their engineers are always coming up with new things that are better and safer. And, um, and that, that makes me feel good. And then I also, I mean, when I dirt jump and ride downhill now, I wear a a mouth guard, um, which is supposed to cut down on, um, concussions by quite a bit as well. Um, Ah, I hadn't heard that. Yeah. They found that, um, your teeth clacking together as you hit the ground, is part of the cause of concussions. Interesting. Um, so not only will the mouth guard, you know, keep me from knocking my teeth out again, um, if I'm dirt jumping or whatever, uh, it'll also, uh, it's supposed to cut down on concussions. So I think it's important to do everything that you can to have, you know, replace your helmet when you hit it and to keep up with technology and get a new helmet every couple of years as things advance. Um, and then along with that, giving yourself recovery time. If you do hit your head, there's concussion centers now. There's one in um, Park City called Think Head First that I just went to recently. And what you do is you get a baseline test when you're healthy, and they've got it in their system. And it's like a 20-minute test, and you it's you know memory, it's speed on th- calculating things, on remembering things, on all that sort of stuff. And then they do uh, physical tests as well, where they'll, you know, move the finger in front of your eyes and close your eyes and touch your nose, touch your arm, touch different things. So you get a baseline. And so that's, so that if I do hit my head again, I can go in there and first of all, see how much, if any damage is done and also know um, when I'm safe to get back on the bike. Um, Ah, I see. Yeah. So I think it's, um, Again, we're not going to stop doing the sports and the activities and things that we love to do. Even the, you know, guys in wheelchairs, they're still, you know, you would think you'd be like, well, that's it. I'm done with that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> right. But no, you get on the sit ski and the sit bike and you still go ride because that's what we like to do. And, yeah, you know, I love the Seinfeld clip you played in the, um, the concussion podcast because <laughs> it is hilarious and it's such a good point it is and i think about that i'm like do i need probably more activities in my life that i don't need to wear a helmet for (laughs) that don't require helmets well we're starting to use helmets in more and more activities i mean look at skiing you know a decade ago nobody was wearing headgear and now pretty much everybody on the mountain has a helmet on yeah seems like awareness is making a really big difference yeah awareness and then um And then the more that we learn as far as uh, repetitive hits and that sort of thing. I mean, my worst concussion, 
I was not unconscious and I had no symptoms at the time. Yeah. And you didn't even think you had one, right? Totally. Um, so it was in 2011 and well, I mean, I figured I had one, but, um, not, I mean, 2011, it wasn't a point of discussion really anyway. It was like, Oh, you hit your head, got a concussion, whatever. Um, you're, you're fine. You know? And what I did was, uh, I was on a film trip and I hit my head, not unconscious, but had a headache, um, felt like I hit my head, that sort of thing. And then the next day or the day after hit my head a lot harder. Um, and looking back, I probably shouldn't have been riding after the first hit because you need to give yourself a certain amount of time between hits. And that's that's really the scariest one because that's when it gets really bad is when you have two in a row. And so again, um, yeah, so I hit my head the second time and I didn't, you know, I had a headache. I definitely felt like I hit my head hard um, and probably had a concussion. But passed all the tests. I had no memory problems. No, I wasn't repeating myself. None of huh. none of the classic symptoms. Yeah. And uh, it was weeks and months later that my wife noticed differences in behavior and um, all of the symptoms of a, a TBI that you you don't we didn't notice right away. And so I had to. And another, a big one was uh, I tried to do a. I think it was a 360 on my bike in my mm -hmm. backyard jumps and uh, I landed and rode away. And then I was so dizzy. I had to sit down. Um, so I'm like, wait a minute, something's not right here. And it, you know, it took that summer to recover. Yeah. yeah who knows the lasting effects and that that scares me the most is um, just not knowing yeah. what the future is going right. to bring. Um, but hopefully, you know, medical catches up and we figure out some way to, treat it. But for now, it's just making sure that I give my, I, you know, like I said, I got the tests done, making sure that I'm cleared to ride by those guys. And, um, I don't have any symptoms, things like that. So, um, yeah, so they're like, everything's, everything's good. My, my brain seems great. And I really haven't had that many concussions when you add them up over the years. So, um, so I feel good about that. And, now I just try to minimize it and not hit my head. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's always good advice. Well, we're going to take a break real quick, but when we come back, we're going to hear about what Eric is working on these days. Stay tuned. Steo is a brand mountain bikers may not be familiar with yet, but the company's mission of designing technical functional products infused with mountain soul is one I think all of us can appreciate. I tested the Steo OPR shorts this spring and found they vented really well. Yet, looking at the shorts, you probably wouldn't even notice the vents designed to open when pedaling or the strategic laser cutouts. And that's the point. Their products are designed for epic and everyday moments. Head over to steo.com slash singletracks to check out their entire pedal collection. That's S-T-I-O dot com backslash singletracks. And we're back. So Eric, you're a dad of a couple of boys and a lot of our readers are dads as well. So I want to ask you, how have you approached introducing your kids to mountain biking? I've uh, put quite a bit of thought into how I introduce my kids to mountain biking. Um, obviously, it's a big part of my life and part of their lives just by living with me. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I've tried to make it um, something that you know, bikes just, I mean, I started out 
at six months old with my first son, um, I just had a push bike in the living room and he could spin the wheels with his hands. And, um, so it was just always a, a natural part of their life. Um, and you know, when he could stand up, he could stand over the push bike and help himself walk using the push bike instead of, you know, one of those toy lawnmowers or, you know, some of the things like that. And he had that stuff too. But, um, so it's just another toy. And then, and then we'd use it to, you know, get around a campground or, um, you know, going down the street to the playground, things like that. So it was, so they, it was, you know, uh, a cool way to get places, um, that's more fun than walking and, you know, and then going on from there, even riding bikes to a friend's house or to get ice cream or whatever. And then, and then just the act of mountain biking itself, um, I, we started on push bikes for that too. And I think I was just really conscious of, um, making sure that I never put them in over their heads. Um, because that's when, that's when kids get scared off and then, you know, kids get irrational fears really easily. Um, so I think you have to be careful with that because mountain biking is pretty crazy, really. Um, it's, it doesn't make sense that it even works Mm -hmm. and the stuff that we can roll over on our bikes and, we get pretty desensitized to it. And, um, I mean, I learned that years ago, uh, taking my wife mountain biking cause she was a skier, but then she got into mountain biking and then, you know, next thing you know, we're at Whistler and Garbanzo opened for the first year and, uh, Oh, let's go up there. I just did a lap with my friends. It was awesome. And, <laughs> right. uh, I didn't really see the waist high drops cause we were going fast and rolling right over them. But, to someone who's just getting into mountain biking, a waist high drop is huge. So translating that down to kids, I kind of kept that in mind. Um, cause that, you know, obviously makes a huge fight with your wife and that's not fun. Um, you want to make a fun experience. So I thought about that a lot and, you know, a four inch root is huge for a little kid. Um, so I just kept it, uh, you know, pump tracks and, really smooth trails and kind of worked up as they were ready to go. And as they were asking for, you know, harder, bigger rides and, um, then you can start challenging them and that sort of thing. But, um, I think it was, and it was important for me for it to be their thing and not my thing. Uh, so it wasn't something that, uh, I'm like, all right, we're going mountain biking now. That's today's activity. It was more like, uh, you know, just let them ask and, or ask them if they want to go, you know, ride out to go skip rocks at a lake or something like that. And kind of having an ulterior plan that the mountain bike is just part of. So it's not always about, all right, we're going to do dad's sport now. And, um, it, so far it's worked. I mean, you never know with kids, my kids are six and eight, but, um, they absolutely love it. And I think part of it too, is I love all kinds of things in the mountains. So it's, it's not just mountain biking because kids can get burned out on stuff pretty easy. And so, you know, we, uh, well, half the year I'm in Utah, so we're skiing and snowboarding and then, you know, we just go hiking we go fishing, we go do other stuff too. So we keep it, keep it mixed up. So we're never doing too much of one thing. Yeah. My kids are about the same ages as your kids. And like you said, pump tracks are huge. They love just going to a pump track and sessioning, you know, cause it's, generally pretty flat so they don't have to have a lot of strength or stamina and the pump track itself is usually pretty smooth so not a lot of technical obstacles to get them thrown off balance 
The other thing that I do is try to plan out a route for the kids that I think they're going to enjoy. And then I take that route and I cut it in half because I always tend to overestimate how far they're going to want to go or, you know, how long they're going to be able to hold their interest. And so, yeah, it's better. It seems to err on the side of like, Oh, this ride was too short. We want more instead of going on a, you know, five mile death march or whatever it is for a kid that age. Yeah, exactly. Keep it fun. Bring a bunch of snacks and do side activities like, uh, throwing sticks or rocks or build a fort or whatever. Um, and then, you know, it's, I think we're in such a good place now with pump tracks everywhere and, um, flow trails and easier trails. Um, you know, it bums me out when I, when you, and, and I know the internet is like the, the very vocal 5% of the population, but you know, people making this big stink about, um, oh, you're building too many easy trails now and sanitizing trails and, and all this stuff. And th- we got into it when we were adults <laughs> or even like teenagers. So we made conscious decisions to ride these trails. Yeah. And we didn't have any alternatives either. Maybe if we had flow trails, we would have ridden those when we were kids. Yeah. So if we really want this sport, we love to continue to grow and flourish and be awesome. I think those trails are, are awesome to have. And then we still have the big backcountry trails and the, you know, the hard stuff that's, you know, that stuff just can be a little bit further out and you work a little bit harder to get there. And, um, there's definitely needs to be a place for both. Um, you know, my favorite trails here in Utah are the nastiest trails that are moto legal, that are rough and remote and hike a bikes and not that many people ride them, but, um, I'm happy that they're there. And then park city, you've been there, you know, you know how easy some of the trails are and then they've got hard trails too. And it just makes it accessible and you can see what kind of thriving bike community it has when you go there. So yeah, it's good to have both. Yeah, that's a great point. So aside from riding with your kids, you also have to do a lot of riding for your job professionally, a lot of big rides. So how do you make time for those rides when you have those family responsibilities? <laughs> it's actually really tough. Um, you know, if I'm filming, if we're shooting, that sort of thing, it's uh, it's on the schedule and, you know, got to and that's just like scheduling work with your wife and your kids. Um, <laughs> yeah. you know, so that's not as big of a deal, but the, the, you know, kind of the soul rides, the rides for me, for, uh, for fun, mm-hmm. those are a little bit, I have to squeeze them in like everybody else. <laughs> Cause I spend, you know, most of my day at a computer planning stuff and getting producing content, giving product feedback, all kinds of stuff like that. And so I've, it's, it's a lot more of a day job than everybody would perceive. And then, uh, you know, I do have to be a pretty, have a high level of fitness for the film trips that I do. So I'm pretty often waking up at five in the morning or six in the morning and climbing for a couple hours and then get back in time to help get the kids ready for school and send them off on the bus. Or, you know, uh, this weekend I'm trying to plan a big four hour ride that's takes about 40 minutes to drive to. And, um, it's one of my favorite trails, but it's a, it's a mission, you know, it takes a half a day. So I think we're going to get up super early. I called my buddy Hap who's up for, he's always up for a mission like that as well. And, um, you know, I think we're going to get up super early, drive out there and do the ride and try to be back by 10 or 11 and, 
then I can still have the rest of the weekend day with my kids and the family. So it's, it's more like anyone else than you would think. Um, you know, I, it has a, everyone says, Oh, you get to ride your bike all the time. And like, well, kind of, (laughs) right. (laughs) Yeah. My, the big rides for fun, which, uh, which are important. Um, so it doesn't turn into, you know, feeling like it's all work. Yeah. Those, those rides are, um, I got to plan them out or, you know, wake up early or stay up late or whatever, um, to make that stuff happen just like everybody else. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I think it's good for a lot of us to hear that, you know, we see on social media posts about people riding in these epic places. And it just seems like everybody else has more time to ride than we do. But the fact of the matter is we're all really busy and it can be tough to carve out time for those rides. Yeah, even yeah, my social media, it's, uh, I put a little bit of the normal stuff, but no one wants to see pictures of me sitting at a computer, you know, and so uh, <laughs> that's not why they're following. So, but it is good to let them know every now and then that, um, you know, we're closer to the same than, than you think, um, as far as my time and what I get to do and that sort of thing. And, and those rides are important for, yeah, for your brain and for your, you know, just having a good time. And that's why we ride. And, but it also, it does have a work component too, because, that's when you can, I can get an idea for product testing stuff different than when we're out shooting video and photos. Um, uh, cause that's more of the real world and, you know, pushing your bikes and your tires and your suspension and everything. So, um, plays a pretty key role in the testing part as well. Yeah. Well, let's talk about that. You know, you've transitioned away from competition for the most part. So what kind of projects are you working on these days? Uh, yeah, so I've, I've had, uh, really, uh, adapt and evolve, um, with my career to continue to have this be my job. And so the main part of my job is producing content. So shooting videos and putting together magazine articles and doing cool trips and, uh, stuff like that, that inspires people to ride. And, um, in the end, you know, gets the products for the people that I ride for, um, in the public eye. And so the, you know, kind of the typical role of a pro rider there. Um, but then I also add to that, that I do quite a bit of product testing with, um, Diamondback and with Kenda and with, uh, Magura, um, and other, other sponsors. I, I do a bit with actually everybody that I ride for pretty much. Um, is that a relatively new thing? Has product testing and development always been part of the deal for pro athletes or, are more brands just starting to realize what an asset they have in pro athletes like yourself? It's supposed to be really, uh, but it's um, not everyone's good at it. Um, First of all, it's, it's tough to ride and have fun and push the product and also think critically about it and how it could be improved. And it's sort of um, like writing a product review for us. Totally. It is. It, it takes away from the riding a bit, doesn't it? Like you're, um, thinking so much about the product and the bike and what you like about it, what you don't like. Um, yeah, it's a lot like that. And yeah. And like you said, that's work, which is separate from what you call the soul rides. Yeah. It's, uh, and sometimes you can combo those, you know, sometimes the big, the big ride for you is also, um, at the end you can think about, you know, that bike worked great on this. Um, or, (laughs) <laughs> that tire actually held up the entire time. So it's good. Yeah. So it's, um, 
it can go both sides, but really to, to test well, you, um, I mean, a lot of times you're doing really repetitive, like, uh, shuttling a two minute section and then changing a little bit, changing your suspension settings or changing your tires every other run, um, so that you can go back to back to back and actually feel differences between the two. Because if you ride in two different places on two different days, who knows? Everything's out the window. If you want to actually be scientific about it, um, testing kind of sucks. <laughs> you know, you're you're really firing out run after run after run on the same run. And um, but when you do that and you follow the process and you give feedback every run that's when you get real results as well. So how did you figure that out? Was that something that the brands come to you and say, here's how you set up your tests? Or is this something that you've kind of figured out along the way? Or was it based on maybe, you know, something you learned in college about, you know, scientific method and testing stuff? Uh, it's definitely something I've learned, um, through companies that I've worked with. Um, but then it also makes sense to me as someone who's who went to college and um, took a lot of science classes and yeah, you sound like an engineer. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, you know, my college uh, education has helped me so many ways and so many times over the years as a pro rider. I, I tell the Nike kids that as well. It's like you'd, you'd be surprised how much I use my college education to have a job as a pro rider, but, um, yeah, stay in school kids. Yeah, exactly. I mean, it, uh, it really benefited me. I mean, from racing, from development, everything, um, learning how to write, uh, well, everything like that. But yeah, so we're testing. Um, the first memory I have of like really testing was, um, was with, uh, Fox and we were, um, their process is so good and they're, you know, They've got the engineers there and we're making little changes every run. And I mean, you can just get a lot of work done in a day and really figure out how the suspension is working and how it's, how it, each adjustment changes that and the volume and the damping and everything there to make it work exactly how it should. And what, what each adjustment actually does in real world, because, um, you could turn some knobs on someone's bike and they'll say, Oh, that feels better, but they'll have no idea what's actually happening, which is, so it's cool to learn that from the process. And then, um, Kenda as well with their new line of tires with the, um, Hellcat. I worked a lot on that project and we had engineers out here and we had, uh, four sets of competitor tires. And then, um, I think four different compounds and, uh, knob designs, um, of the Kenda tires and we spent uh, two full days doing laps at Deer Valley and changing tires. Um, you do two laps on each tire and the uh, bike would be the same. The tire pressure would be the same. Everything's, everything's the same. You do the same run, take the same lines. And then when you do that, you can really tell a difference between the tires and, um, and know what the compounds are doing, what the, knob shapes are doing and sizes and placement. And, um, you can, you know, you really get pretty detailed about it. And that's the only way you can really make, uh, you know, real, uh, progress as far as product as well. Um, so it's, yeah, pretty cool. And then I get a taste for what the competitors are like too. So I know, you know, how the other tires are working and, um, 
when we, you know, obviously the goal is to make tires that work better than everything else. Um, so it's, it's really cool to have that confidence as well, that after we finish the process and we make this tire that I feel like I'm on the best tires on the market because I've tested all the others. Um, so it's, it's cool. Yeah, that's really interesting sort of behind the scenes info. So are there any video projects or adventures that you're working on or are planning out for later this year? Yeah, I'm working on producing the Morocco trip right now. Um, so we went there in May and we rode through the high Atlas Mountains, um, and uh, which go up to 13,000 something feet. Um, I mean, you think of Morocco as the desert, but it was high alpine and there were a couple passes we wanted to go over that were um, still too snowpack to do. So, um, and then finishing in the Sahara Desert with the uh, full-on, you know, sand dunes like you would imagine the Sahara Desert and riding camels and that sort of thing, which is pretty wild. Um, so that was, you know, uh, yeah, insane cultural experience as well as um, amazing trails, um, which we didn't really know what we were going to get, but. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, we're blown away by the trails there. Why were the trails built? Uh, well, their their paths between um, the Berbers were nomadic, and they would move from valley to valley. And um, so we, we were riding these trails that were, you know, thousands of years old um, to get from one place to another. And it turns out if you do that, you, you find a pretty good route. Um, <laughs> and the trails were, yeah, super fun, and they are a lot of fast and flowy, um, just amazing trails benched into the high Atlas mountains and you're riding, you know, through these towns because some of these villages are just getting dirt roads or, or electricity even. And so the roads actually go through, uh, I mean, the trails actually just go through these towns, um, these little villages with the mud huts and, um, these amazing, I mean, it's just, it's like going into a time machine. Um, yeah, that sounds really cool. Yeah. So, um, I'm writing an article from out bike action, um, for that trip. And then we're producing the video as well. Um, and then we went to Iceland last year as well. Um, that trip is coming out, uh, later this summer. And then I just did, just did a couple of videos with, um, Seth from Seth's bike hacks. Um, yeah, yeah. We shared one of those. Awesome. Um, yeah, so those were super fun. Seth's an awesome guy and, yeah, it was a blast to show him around my, my home zone now and take him up on the crest trail and, um, and then show him about the backyard and kind of fill him in on how that came to be. That's his, his new series, uh, tiny trails where he's going to talk about people's backyard riding setups. Yeah, that's um, neat. So that was a lot of fun. And, um, yeah, just uh, a whole bunch of it's, I feel like, uh, my job, a lot of it is really juggling all the different, uh, kind of stories and outlets and everything. Cause, uh, I, I try to work with everybody because all of you guys are my friends and all of you have such unique outlets. Um, so it's really cool to, to work with the, you know, all the different across the board with the media from video to print to web to even TV stuff. I just did a cool TV show with, um, this guy, Eric Dowdle, um, and his show is called painting the town with Eric and it's a PBS show. And, um, he's this amazingly talented artist that sketches up the stuff that then turns into a painting that then turns into a puzzle. And he really gets to, he spends a week in each place and gets to know kind of the town and a few of the characters and 
what makes it what it is and then mm-hmm. puts that all into one painting. So this is uh, the TV show about that. Um, and so I took him riding up at Deer Valley and got him on a mountain bike, I, I think about for the first time, um, and <laughs> didn't kill him. So nice. <laughs> that was awesome. Yeah. So really, man, across the board, so many different projects with different things. Actually, in a couple of weeks, we have um, the gravel bike video that you saw um, up in Sun Valley um, that we shot in Salida. Oh, yeah. Um, so that'll come out in a couple of weeks as well. Um, so I'll make sure to send that your way, too. Great. Cool. Yeah. And it all sort of fits in with your career progression overall. I mean, writing different disciplines and sort of having your hand in all sorts of things within mountain bike culture and the sport and different media outlets. It's really cool to see. Yeah. It keeps it interesting for me. I, my parents always said that I was, uh, the eight undiagnosed ADD, um, <laughs> from growing up in the eighties, they, they didn't want to take me into the doctor and get the <laughs> right. Ritalin and all that sort of thing. So I just always had something to do. And my mom was a kindergarten teacher, so she understood kind of how to channel the energy and, so I always put that into sports and, um, I think that's why I, I wouldn't, I don't get bored doing the same thing, I guess, but, uh, I just like to do, I mean, an ideal day is I'm riding my road bike and my mountain bike and my dirt jump bike or my downhill bike and kind of spanning these different genres of riding that, uh, that most people don't really do. Um, but it's, it's all fun to me and, um, and the same reason I like snowboarding and skiing in the winter. And I don't even, I'm even 50, 50 between those two sports. Um, I don't even pick just one of them. I like to do, like to do a bit of everything. So, um, yeah, it's funny. I, I was trying to figure out cause I, I have to describe what I do as a rider, um, somewhat often. And, and it's, it would be so much easier if I was like, I'm a downhill racer or whatever it is. Which for a while I I I could say that, but um, now it's kind of like my description is I I like to ride bikes. I I ride all of the bikes um, in all the different places, and um, I just like to be a ambassador for the sport of cycling. I guess um, it's all all fun to me. Well, as someone who has been in the industry for nearly two decades, what opportunities do you see for mountain biking in the future? I think mountain biking is growing faster than it ever maybe i don't know maybe not ever has i got into it in um the early 90s i guess about 91 or so um when i was a kid and um it kind of had its heyday and then it went down and it was you know it was big it was on tv racing was all this stuff and then it kind of went down and then i think bike technology got amazing and then it got away from this uh, perception that you have to wear spandex and look goofy. And <laughs> you think that turned off a lot of people? Yeah, I think it did. And and it was hard. It was gnarly. Like you couldn't take someone mountain biking on something that would uh, something easy. Like the, yeah, it's good it point. just wasn't there. You're, you'd say, you got to try this mountain biking thing and you take someone out and then there'd be huge rock gardens and roots and especially growing up in the Midwest or East coast or something. And so it wasn't something people would be like, this, this sport's crazy. And it always had that perception that it was either, oh, mountain biking's crazy, or it had the perception of, oh, you guys just wear spandex and, you know, pedal uphill all day long right. or whatever it is. Um, so I think now with bike parks, with pump tracks, with flow trails, with affordable bikes that are, I mean, 
that are pretty awesome. I mean, you can get a bike for still a lot of money, but, uh, you know, two or three grand, that's, um, an awesome full suspension bike with a good spec, um, which is a place we haven't been in a long time, you know? And I think, uh, and they just work. Your chain doesn't fall off. Your suspension works good. We have dropper posts to get your seat out of the way. And I mean, what I'm seeing here in Utah is that I've known some of the pro snowboarders and skateboarders for a while here from uh, different teams I've been on and things like that. And I used to say, you know, in the 2000s, um, I'd say, you know, oh, you got to come, you know, mountain biking with me in the off season to like a pro snowboarder. And they'd be like, ah, no way. I don't do that. I, I skateboard in the, in the summer or whatever it is, you know? Um, but it wasn't cool at all. And all those guys have mountain bikes now. And so I think when the, you know, air quotes, cool guys from like the, again, air quotes, cool sports, like the snowboarding and moto and all those sports, those guys all mountain bike now. They all have mountain bikes. They all, you know, go hit jumps. They ride trails. They go to bike parks. Um, when those guys are doing it, that's a pretty good um, barometer, if you will, or whatever for um, for the sport. And um, you know, those are the kind of thought leaders on that people look to for what's cool and for style and for things like that. So when those guys are mountain biking, that's good for the sport. And just everybody has a good time when they do it now. Um, even pads, like, you know, you used to, you used to race in a full Dionese suit, like with the, like, you know, the head to toe suit with pads everywhere. And, uh, now most of the racers are just throwing some knee pads and a full face helmet. Um, you know, so it's, uh, padding is even the knee pads are comfortable and helmets are comfortable and, you can you can look good, look cool, and ride your bike and and be comfortable as well and have a good time. So I think it's just accessible now, and I think it's going to keep growing and being more of a normalized sport that's accepted as cool. And maybe that'll have downsides too, but I think on the upside, it'll we'll get a lot more trails out of it, and we'll get uh, just we won't be that fringe sport anymore. I mean, when in, high school league mountain biking is bigger than high school football. Things have changed and I'm doing my part to help that as well. I'm, I just became a uh, vice president of uh, Wasatch trails foundation here in Wasatch County, Utah. Um, and so we've been working hard to do all kinds of stuff and uh, we just filed for a grant and got approved to build a pump track and a couple flow trails at the bottom of the wow trail. So, um, right here in Midway, right by my house. Um, and, um, that's really exciting and yeah, just excited for the future of the sport and doing what I can to help it grow. Well, awesome. Yeah. You've had a really diverse and long career so far, and it sounds like you're continuing to progress and add on to that and find new things to get involved in. And that's really cool to see. And thank you for joining us and filling us in on all the things you've been a part of and where you see mountain biking going in the future. Yeah, thanks for having me. I'm a fan of what you guys are doing, and um, it's awesome, the community you've built around mountain biking. So, yeah, uh, thanks for everything you guys do as well. Well, that's all we have this time. Remember, if you're enjoying the Single Tracks podcast, please rate us in your podcast app. 
And be sure to check out singletracks.com for the latest news and videos from pro writers like Eric Porter. Talk to you again next week. Peace.